Heavenly Father, we thank You, we praise You for Your Word, and we thank You, Lord, that though the, the Bible was put on paper many years ago, that, Father God, it still applies to every life in this room today. And, Father God, I just pray, Lord, that we would learn from Your Word, that it would be applied to our lives, that we would learn about discipleship and humility, the things that You, that you taught these people so many years ago. May You teach it to us today. May we be receptive to hear from You. We pray again that you would be our teacher, that man would decrease, that your spirit would increase, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. We're going to pick up in verse 7 this morning of, of Luke 14, and Lord willing, we're going to go through the rest of the chapter. And I actually titled the message, Dinner with Jesus, because that's exactly what this is. These people come together, and they remember they, we saw last week where they, they invited Him in with ulterior motives, but wouldn't it be awesome to sit down and have dinner with Jesus? Wouldn't it be awesome to hear what He would want to say to us? Can you imagine if you invited Him over to your house? What might He say to you? And we're going to see tonight, or this morning, exactly what the Lord says as He's invited over. And He has four different groups that He's going to speak to. Uh, Jesus was invited to dine at the house of one of the Pharisees. And while the Pharisees' motives were impure, they desired to bring accusation against the Lord, it still reveals His deep love for each person in attendance as He dresses each different group that is there. And He has a different message for each one of them. And I believe every one of those messages applies to us today. You know, true, will, true love is willing to point out false beliefs that left unchecked would lead to destruction. You know, a lot of people think that with Christianity, that it's, you know... It's all about grace, which it is, but it's also all about truth. Amen? Because you know what? The grace of God requires that there be the truth of God's Word. You know, truth without love is brutality, and love without truth is hypocrisy. That's why we must speak the truth in love. And Jesus is going to speak lovingly, but He's going to speak very directly to those who are sitting there. Many of them have misconceived ideas about what it means to be His follower. Some of them are trying to trap the Lord. And maybe you're here today, maybe you have a misconceived notion of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. But, but hopefully by the time you leave today, you won't have that misunderstanding anymore. He taught them the truth. He desired again, He pointed it out to them in a, lovingly way, in a loving way. And desiring that there would be conviction that would come from His words. Conviction brings conversion. So last week we saw at the beginning of chapter 14 that Jesus dealt with false piety and the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. There are many people walking around today that think that they're righteous in and of themselves. And the Lord dealt very clearly with them as we saw last week. You know, the, the Pharisees thought that they were going to trip up the Lord. They invited Jesus over so they could trip Him up. And often people do that today. They try to you know, trip up the Bible. They try to question the Word of God. They try to question Almighty God. And we know that the Lord will deal with them. A true relationship with God and a love for people is what God desires from us. He doesn't want us just to have this man-made traditions that we follow and this, these rituals. But He wants us to have a, a love for God and a love for His people. And you know what? You can't love people unless you know the love of God. You can't truly love them. You can't have that supernatural love. And that's what the Lord... So He rebuked their hypocritical hearts that they would... He even said to them, you know, you guys will pull a donkey out on the Sabbath, but you won't... You, you think it's against the law to heal somebody. Remember, they had taken rules and rituals and they had made religion this heavy burden that nobody could bear. And some of you, maybe you've gone to churches in the past where church is just this big heavy burden. And all it does is just put a weight on you and you just walk around heavy all the time and overwhelmed and feeling like you never can measure up. And the reality is that that is not an abundant life in Christ. Jesus came that we might have life and life more abundantly. Amen? And He doesn't want us walking around, you know, just feeling like we can never measure up. The reality is we can't measure up. That's why He died for us. Amen? He said, take my burden. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And if you walk with the Lord, you won't walk around feeling overwhelmed. This morning, the Sabbath feast continues as Jesus is going to address false ambition and pursuit of popularity. He's going to deal with false hospitality with a false security or sense of understanding why they were going to heaven, and a false understanding of what it truly means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And a lot of these things I see are very prevalent even in the world today. So let's begin in verse 7, and we're going to look at false ambition, seeking position and popularity before men. And it's something we can all fall, a trap we can all fall into. Look at verse 7. So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, when you're invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come to you and say to you, give the place to this man, and then you begin with shame to take the lower 
place. In Jesus' day, as today, there were status symbols that helped people and helped enhance their position before men. People wanted to sit in the best place because if you were seated next to the host, if you were seated in the best place, then people would esteem you higher. You would get more invitations to come to other homes. People would go, ooh, wow, you're special. You're sitting right up at the front table. They would typically sit in, a U, in U-shaped tables and the, the highest position was up in the very front, in the very center. And people would look and be, want, want those positions. So when the door would open for a feast, people would run to get those positions because they wanted the world to esteem them highly. They wanted the world to look at them and think that they were something special. The emphasis was on reputation, not character. More concerned about sitting in the right spot than being the right person. In the New Testament, you see over and over and over again this, this opportunity for these social gatherings. And over and over and over again, the people desired above all else to look good in front of men. They weren't worried at all about how, how they were before God. You know what? The same thing goes on in the world today. People again rushing to, to look good before men. Today, society doesn't judge us by where we sit at dinner. They judge us in other ways. We judge people based on the kind of car they drive. We judge people based on the the kind of house that they live in, what their address is, how they dress, how educated they are, what they do for a living, how much money we make. And that's why people spend money they don't have to buy things they don't need to impress people they don't know. Amen? I mean, we're spending money where our whole focus so often is trying to look good in front of other people. Now, it's interesting that yesterday uh, we went back, we went to the... Back to school day for Baymont. My kids go to Baymont Christian School, and we love it. It's a blessing. We love being there. But some of the people had heard through the grapevine, I don't know how it gets out, but that we had sold our house and moved into a modular home, right? And I have no problem. You know, that, that's where we live. We live, in a, we live in a trailer park. You know, it's all good. And, you know, the funny part is that people were coming up to my wife going, I can't believe your husband did that to you. I cannot believe that he took you out of that beautiful house and now you live in a trailer. You know what I mean? And, and my wife was just blown away. And then one woman even said, well, I married my husband because I knew he'd be a good provider. You know, and I, you know, I, I drive a brand new car and we've got you know, three cars and a boat and we've got this and we've got this. And, you know, and they judge success. And these are Christian people that go to church and they judge success based on the stuff that you have. And you know what the reality is? That a man is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Amen? It's so, more, it's so much more important to be focused on that which is eternal. And you know what? Quit looking for status. Quit trying to be something in front of men. Because when we stand before God, none of that will matter. And here we see these people, they're rushing in and they want to sit in the right spot because they want people to think they're important. You know what? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. Amen? Too often we're trying to get position. We're trying to look good before men. We want people to, to look at us and think that we're something special. Pride go before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That's what the Bible says. If you're proud of yourself, if you think you've accomplished something, take heed lest you fall. Because here's the reality. If you have money, who gave it to you? Amen? God did. If you have a nice home, who does it belong to ultimately? When it gets right down to it, we're all just renting. Amen? We're all renting. We're not living here for all eternity. And these guys didn't get it. They were seeking position. They wanted the accolades of men. And the Lord was very direct with them. He was very direct with them. Look what He says in verse 9. And, and He tells them, don't take those best seats. Because if you do, you may get the, the person who comes, the master may come, or the person who invited you and say, no, 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 that's not your seat. You need to come sit down here. Pride go before destruction. God will... Resist, give grace to the humble and resist the proud. And that's exactly what we see him talking about. In Proverbs 25, it says this, Do not exalt yourself in the presence of the king and do not stand in the place of the great. It says, For it is better that, you say to you, that he say to you, Come here, that you should be put in a lower presence in, in front of the prince. You don't, want, you don't want someone to come and say, No, you don't belong there. You need to come sit down here. Now, this is not a formula, you know, go sit in the lower place so you can have false humility, because God hates false humility just as much as He hates pride. Amen? We need to have humble hearts and come seeking nothing for ourselves, but that God alone would be glorified. Look at verse 9. And it says, He who invited you may come to you and say, Give this place to this man, and you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, go up higher then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table. 
For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, the Bible is filled with a lot of these types of statements that from the world's perspective make no sense, right? He who humbles himself will be exalted, and he who exalts himself will be humbled. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. What? And, you know, from the world's perspective, it makes no sense. But the world says exalt self, esteem self. You know what? Our kids don't need more self-esteem. They esteem themselves way too stinking much already. Amen? I mean, nobody had to teach my kids mine, right? They knew all that. And you don't need to esteem yourself more. That is psychobabble from the pit of hell. The reality is we need to deny self, not esteem self. Amen? We're, you know what? I'm always on my mind and that's my problem. Amen? Aren't you always thinking about you? I'm always thinking about me. What, well, how, well, how does this work for me? How does this help me? What does this do for me? Right? And we go to church. Well, how is this convenient for me? How do these chairs feel to me? Right? I mean, we're thinking about us all the time. And that's the problem. And these guys were thinking about themselves, exalting themselves. It's all about me. What's in it for me? And so the Lord is very clear and says, you know what? Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. You know what? When we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. God will put you in the place that He wants you to be. We can strive in our flesh to get places that we never should have been been to begin with. Amen? We get ourselves in trouble when we strive. No striving. Trust God. Humble yourselves. Jesus is not speaking again of a false gimmick. His ideal and heart is that, that these people would not be worried about what men thought, but they would come with all humility. God is not impressed by our status in society or our position in the church. He sees our thoughts. He sees our motives. The Bible says that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. You know, we can put on airs and fool men, but you cannot fool God. Amen? God knows right where you are. He knows what your motives are. He knows why you're serving. If you're serving, He knows your motives in serving. Are you serving so people will see you? Then stop serving. If you're serving out of a love for the Creator of the universe and you're giving back to Him because... Because He first loved you. And it's a get to and not a have to. And you count it a blessing and you can't believe that God uses you. That's serving. Not coming in and looking for someone to give you accolades and say how wonderful you are because you serve. Again, God still humbles the proud and exalts the humble. He sees again our, th- our thoughts and our hearts and our motives. Now what is humility? I want to say something real quick about that. Because people think that humility means that you think meanly of yourself. You know, I'm a, I'm a low-down, vile worm, or, you know, and you've got to think bad things about yourself all the time. That's not humility. Humility is not thinking bad of yourself. Humility is not thinking of yourself at all. You know, true ministry starts when you are out of the equation, when it's no longer about you. It's no longer about what I must do or how people are going to see me. Ministry starts when it's all about Him. And you know what? When we learn to die to self, And it's no longer my will or my passion or my desires, but Lord, it's your will be done. And if you can use an unworthy vessel like me, then praise God. And you know what? Let me die. Let me get out of the way and let God do an awesome work. As we mature in our walk with God and in ministry, we will eventually come to the point when it is no longer about me and our focus will not be on me, but on others. Remember joy? Jesus, J-O-I, Jesus, others, yourself. And that's how you have joy. When you put Jesus first, and you're so in love with Him, and He's your best friend, and you commune with Him daily. He walks with me, He talks with me, He's my friend 24-7, right? I call it putting God on speakerphone, right? You wake up with prayer, and you pray all day, and you never hang up, amen? He's your best friend, intimate relationship with Him. And then you view others greater than yourself. Then you will know and understand joy. And that's the point the Lord is trying to make to these guys. Our entire focus should be on the Lord and on others. Jesus, God incarnate, the ultimate example of humility. Here's Jesus, the Son of the living God, the Alpha and the Omega, the Creator of the universe. What kind of man was He? He was humble. Amen? He, you know what? He was not a man who esteemed the praises of men. Didn't care. Wasn't worried about what the world thought about Him as far as Him physically as a person. He was doing one thing, pointing people to the Father. And if we're Christians, followers of Him, shouldn't we be doing the same thing? Shouldn't we too be pointing people to the Father? Not looking at us, but looking alone at Him. Entire life focused on living for, ministering to, and ultimately dying on behalf of others. That's what Jesus did. So we go from this desire for position, ambition, and pride, to the Lord speaking about false hospitality. Look at verse 12 through 14. Then He said to them, 
who invited him, when you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. The host invited only those people who he knew would then be indebted to him and they would have to give him something back. They only, his motives were impure. His motives and his passions were, let me give so I can look good and then people will give back to me. Let me give so they'll invite me over later. Let me give so people will say how wonderful my house is. And everybody will come and see how great my home is and they'll praise me and they'll honor me. You know the greatest form of giving that exists? When you give in anonymity, when you give and nobody knows you're giving. You know why? Because only God will be glorified then. Nobody will say anything about you. They'll say something about God. You know, it's neat to be able to bless somebody. You hear about someone has a need, God puts something on your heart, and you go and you bless them, and they have no clue that it came from you. All they're doing is praising God. And that's where all the praise belongs anyway. Amen? This host didn't understand. Now, I want to make it clear that the Lord's not saying that we should never have you know, dinner with family and friends. That's not what He's saying. But what He's saying is that we should have a burden to reach out to those who are in need. To reach out to those who cannot pay us back. Not just look to those who can return and bless us in return. Our motive for sharing must be the praise of God and not the applause of men. The eternal reward in heaven and not the temporary recognition on earth. Here's the reality, you guys. You can only get your reward one time. And you're either going to get it here from men or you're going to get it in heaven from God. That's it. One or the other. You don't get it both ways. If you're seeking the praise of men, you better enjoy it. Because that's all you're getting, right? But if you do it for the glory and the honor of God... You know what? A lot of people think we get to heaven that like, you know, Billy Graham's going to be the front of the line, all these other people. And, and certainly they're mighty men and women of God that God abused. That's great. I believe it's going to be some, you know, some janitor somewhere who prays 12 hours a day. You know what I mean? That nobody knows who he is and he's just praying. You know what I mean? That, those are the people that in anonymity, not looking for the applause of men, not looking to be recognized by men, nobody knows their name and they're mighty people of God interceding on behalf of others. Those are the ones who get it. Because they're doing it, not, because of, not for men, but for the Lord. Best way, again, to give is an anonymity. that God alone is glorified. Bless those who cannot pay you back. Now we're going to move on to a false security, speaking to the Jews. Look at verse 15. Now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now the Lord talked about the, the being repaid at the resurrection of the just. And one of the Jews heard it and said, Blessed is he who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, you have to realize that the Jews thought that they were all going. So they said, blessed is he. Yeah, we're going. And we can't wait till we get there. We're all going to eat in the kingdom of God. They had a false sense of security. They had a false understanding of what it meant to have a relationship with God. They thought they were going to heaven. They thought they were going to enter into that place of, of this heavenly feast. And they're saying, blessed is he. Oh, how happy are those. But you know what? Upon hearing Jesus speak, this man said these things, but... He assumed that it was because he was a descendant of Abraham. He was a descendant of Isaac. He was a descendant of Jacob. And we've talked about this many times, but God has no grandchildren. Amen? You're not going to heaven because your parents are Christians. You know, you're not going to heaven because you go to church on Sunday. You're not going to heaven because you do good things and you give to charity. You're not even going to heaven because you read your Bible or you pray. Heaven is because Jesus died on the cross and paid the price that you could not pay. You were, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And only through His shed blood can we be saved. And these Jews thought because of their heritage, because of their background, because of their lineage, that they were going to heaven. And so He says, blessed is He. But the Lord's got something to say to them. He's going to give them a lesson on the reality of life. Jesus responds to the man's false confidence and security by telling him a parable that revealed the sad consequences of false confidence. Look what it says here in verse 16 and 17. Then he said to him, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many. And he sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, come, for all things are now ready. Now in those days, when they had a dinner feast, they would go out and invite people days in advance. Because, you know, they didn't have microwaves back then, right? You weren't like just nuking food and just, you know, making it real quick. They typically would have to go out and maybe even butcher some animals. So they would go out and find out who was coming. And they'd get a list of people and they'd go, oh yeah, I'll be there. When is it Saturday? Okay, I'll be there Saturday. And so the people who were coming knew the day, but they did not know the hour. 
And so what would happen is that the person would go and make this great feast for all who were going to come. And then when the time came, he would send his servants out to say, hey, it's time, come eat. It's time, come eat. So they were expected to come. They'd been invited to come. They'd been given a written invitation or a personal invitation from the master. And now was this opportunity to come to this great feast. Now this is a picture of the Jews in that the Lord invited them to come. The first people the Lord appeared to, obviously, was the Jews. The first people that had the opportunity with the Old Testament to write it down, the Jews. Those who had the, the prophets delivered unto them, the Jews. They were invited. They said they would come. And now the time came, the servant came and said, all of you come. Servant here is a picture type of Jesus saying, it's time, come unto me, come. And the response is not going to be favorable. In Jesus' day, again, we see that they would prepare this and time was now ready. He sends out a servant and each guest had already agreed to attend the banquet. Look at verse 18 through 20. But they with one accord began to make excuses. The first said, I bought a piece of ground. I must go see it. I ask you to, be, I ask you to have me excused. Another said, I bought some oxen. I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. People were blaming stuff on their wife even back then, right? And so here, what, here are the excuses that they make. Well, I bought some property. i got to go look at it. Now, that is lame. How many of you have ever bought property or a house without ever seeing it before? That's this guy saying, well, I bought this house, and i gotta go, I got to go check it out. Now, he'd been invited to the dinner. He already knew what day it was going to be, and now he's just given a lame and weak excuse for not coming. The second one says, well, I bought a bunch of oxen. You know, I bought a new car. And i got to go test drive it, so I can't make it to the dinner. Sorry, I'm not going to be there. It's not going to work out for me. And then the last one says, well, i got this wife. you know, i got to go hang out with my wife. I, I'm not going to be able to come. Now, they'd all agreed to come. And these are excuses. D.L. Moody said that an excuse is just a, it's a, a thinly veiled thing with a lie stuffed in it. And that's what excuses typically are. Quite often, we're just lying when we make excuses. And that's what these guys are doing. They're just saying, you know what? I've got something more important than coming. I've got something more important than coming to your feast. And you know what? Nothing is new under the sun. People today still have something more important than God. There's something more important. These three examples translate into today. Let me go over those real quick. First one. I've got a house. I bought some land. In other words, you know, you know, I just got stuff I've got to do around home. I mean, I'd love to come to church. I'd love to be used by God. But, you know, I, I've, I've got this new house or I'm working to buy this new house. And so I've got to work a lot of hours and I just don't have time for God right now. I've got something more important than God. Oh, you know, I'd love to come, but, you know, I've got this new car and, you know... I, I'd kind of like to take it for a spin. You know, I, I just have other things that are more important to me right now than coming and spending time with the Lord. You know, I'm married. I, I, you know, I've got to go hang out with my wife. I mean, I, I don't have time to serve God because I'm married. You know what, guys? Bring your wife with you. Amen? What, what, you couldn't bring your wife with you to the dinner? I mean, the reality is, if you're married, you better be showing up. Amen? I mean, you need to be in fellowship if you're married. And so this guy, what happens is they're making excuses for why they can't come. And every one of these excuses is basically saying, I've got something more important than you, God. My career's more important. My marriage is more important. My kids are more important. My job's more important. I've got other things. You're just not that important to me right now. I don't have time for you. You know, Lord, I'll come to church once every month or so. You know, I, I, you know I got, I've got sports, I've got you know, vacation. And again, nothing wrong with a vacation, but you know what? There are some people that they come to church just every once in a while because God's not that important. They don't even think about the kingdom of God when it comes to their activities. You know, my kids have to deal with it all the time. You know, my kids want to play football. I played football from the time I was 7 until I was 21 years old. So every year when it comes to football time, all my boys come in and go, can we play this year? We call the 800 number and we find out that all the games are on Sunday. So there's no voting on it, period. No, you're not playing. Well, football is great. There's nothing wrong with it. But it's not more important than God. Amen? And we need to start saying, you know what, Lord? My relationship with you is more important than anything else. It's before everything else. Instead of making excuses for why we can't serve God. What is covetousness? Covetousness is desiring more of something that we already have enough of. Now look at the master's response when he gets these excuses. Now, again, the master, a type or a picture of God. And look at the master's response. 
Verse 21. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to the servant, Go out quickly into the streets, the lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. The master was angry. He had done so much for these people. He had prepared this great feast. He invited them to come. He had sacrificially prepared for them, and they said, nah, too busy. And the master was angry. Do you know that our God gets angry? It's righteous anger. It's not flying off the handle anger like we have. You know? It's not blowing a head gasket and throwing something anger like we have. It's righteous anger. It's righteous because He loves us, He's burdened for us, and then we just walk away and say, don't have time for you. I've got something more important to do. You know, I've got... You know, I've got a Little League game, or I've got something. I've got to go do this, Lord, and I just don't have time for you. I just, you're not that important to me, Lord. There's other things that I'd rather be doing. Telling God, I'm doing something else that's more important than you are. So he says, go out and bring in the poor, and the maimed, and the lame, and the blind. You know what's interesting to me? The poor people are not likely to be out buying houses. So you know what? They're going to show up. The people that are maimed and lamed and blind are not going to be out harnessing oxen. So guess what? They're going to show up. You know what? I truly, the Bible says it is harder for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now why is that? Again, I'm not slamming wealth, but here's what I'm saying. is that people who have a lot tend to be distracted a lot. Amen? People that have a lot of stuff tend to be distracted by their stuff got a cabin over here and a boat and a this and that. And we're so involved in doing stuff that's perishing that we miss out on that which is eternal. And you know what? He says, go bring in the poor. They're going to show up. Why? Because they're not distracted by the world. They're not distracted by stuff. The lame, the blind. Again, they're also not likely to be married. And they weren't distracted by possessions or physical pleasures. They were not too busy for God. I'm going to ask you a question. Think about this yourself. Everybody, if I have your attention for one second. Where is God on your priority list? Don't answer. Just think in your own heart. Where's God on your priority list? Is serving Him important to you? Is being plugged in and involved important to you? Do you have a desire and a passion to return to Him for what He's done for you? Or is it just something that falls down on the list somewhere else? We're going to talk about the, what true discipleship is in just a moment. But where is it when it comes to career and entertainment and sports and family? I mean, where does God fit on the list? Paul said in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That doesn't mean Christ is first on my list. It means He's first, He's tenth, He's one hundredth, He's one thousandth, and He's every number in between. Oh, Pastor Dave, that's radical. No, you know what? There need to be more radical Christians today. Amen? We've got enough people calling themselves Christians and it's one or two hours a week. We need to be sold out for Him 24-7 because He's sold out for us. Amen? And you know what? There's just this, there's just this thing about, oh man, well, you know, man, it's just... Can't I just be a Christian and just live my life? You know what? For me to live is Christ. Our life should be all about Christ. And the Lord was grieved. It says here He was angry. Then in verse 22 and 23, And the servant said, Master, we've done all you commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to his servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that the house may be filled. So he went out and they called in the poor and the lame and the blind. And now he says, Go out into the highways and just grab anybody who will come. Now what's interesting to me is those who had been invited were going to miss out on this incredible feast. But those who were out in the street, he was going to bring in. Now what kind of people would they find out in the street? They're going to find the destitute and the homeless and the hurting. They're going to find Gentiles, not Jews. They're going to find just normal, everyday people. And he said, I want you to go out into the street and invite them in. There's still more room. Isn't it good to know that Jesus didn't just die for some, but that He died for all? It is His desire that none should perish, no, not one. He desires that every one of us in this room have a personal, intimate relationship with Him. He doesn't have, you know, His pets. He loves us all. And it says, anybody who will come, there's plenty of room. Please come. Please come. And the Lord would say the same thing to us this morning. Please come. The kind of people that Jesus came to save, the outcasts, the homeless, the hurting, the undesirables. The Bible says in Luke 19, For the Son of Man came, has come to seek and save that which was lost. Verse 24, 
For I say to you that none of these men who were invited shall taste my supper. So not only did he invite other guests, but he shut the door on the excuse makers. Again, the Jews had the Old Testament. They had the prophets. Jesus came to them and they still missed God. In a few short years from this time right here in Luke, that we know that they're going to take and start delivering the gospel into the Gentiles and the Samaritans because the Jews had rejected it. They had the gospel right in front of them, and they rejected it. They had the Word of God right before their eyes, and they rejected it. They had the Messiah standing right before them, and they had no time for Him. They were looking for a Messiah who would rule and reign on earth, and they missed the Creator of the universe. People today make the same mistake as the people in the parable. They delay in responding as they settle for second best. There's nothing wrong with owning a farm, buying oxen, or spending an evening with your wife. But if these good things keep you from enjoying the best things, they become bad things. Let me say that again. If you start putting your marriage, Pastor Dave, put your marriage before God, you are settling for second best. The best thing you can do for your marriage is be an on-fire godly man or an on-fire godly woman. You fall in love with the Lord and your marriage will be awesome. Each for the other, both for God. Having that agape, selfless love, one for another. And that can only come when God is first in your marriage and first in your home. When you start putting your job, again, we need to work. We need to do our job as unto the Lord. But when we put our, our job before God, we have settled for second best. When we put our possessions before God, again, owning a home is not wrong. But do we possess our possessions or do our possessions possess us? What do we live for? Do we live to work or do we work to live? Which is it? Where are our passions? And the Lord is saying, you know what? The door's going to be shut on those who reject me. The door's going to be shut on those who put other things before me. Don't miss out on the best and settle for the second best. The excuse makers were successful people in the eyes of the world, but they were failures in the eyes of the Lord. You know, from the world's perspective, they were successful. Wow! Look at that house. Look at that car. Look at that career. Look at the way you dress and how articulate you are. Wow, you're pretty awesome. You're special. And in the eyes of the Lord, they were bitter failures. Why? Because they were trying to get accolades from men instead of being used mightily by God. The Bible says that we can be friends with one or the other. We are either a friend of God and an enemy of the world, or we are a friend of the world and an enemy of God. One or the other. talked about this before. Too many people are trying to do spiritual splits, right? One foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. And I'm going to tell you something, that doesn't work. That hurts, right? You get down low enough and you, you pull your groin or something, right? I mean, you can't do the spiritual splits. You can't hang on to the world and truly serve God. And too many of us, I've done it myself. We've all done it. Everybody in this room, if we were open, would say, I've been there, I've done that. And maybe you're doing it right now. And we need to seek after God above all else, before everything else. Lord, you're first. Lord, you're first. Lord, I love you above everything else. Lastly, we're going to look at the multitudes, a false understanding of true discipleship. And again, I, the reason I, I know I'm being direct this morning, but you know what? I'm being direct because I love you guys. Because you know what? A watered-down gospel is not love. Someone telling you, oh, you guys are all wonderful. Just keep doing what you're doing. It's great. You know? I could do that, and our church would probably grow real quick. We could you know, have the flying Melinda's in here on Wednesday night, and we could do a bunch of stuff, and people would go, oh, yeah, it's great. I love going there. I never get convicted. But the Word of God should convict us. Amen? And we should be changed and transformed by the Word of God. So the multitudes are going to get a false under, have a false understanding of true discipleship. So look at verse 25. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them. So here we go. The Lord walks out of the house, he walks out of the feast, and these great multitudes who had been sitting outside, when they had those feasts in those days, they're open air. People could look in and they heard him getting after the host. And they heard him getting after the Jews and the Pharisees. And they were probably like, yeah, get him, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You guys have too much money. Yeah, get after him. Right? And they, they're looking at them. And then they go walking out and the crowd follows the Lord. And this multitude came after him. Have you ever noticed that the Lord was never impressed with crowds? Have you ever noticed that? He never went, wow, look at all the people. He never does that once anywhere in the Bible. He never gets excited because of the numbers. You know why? God is looking at hearts. And He knows people's motives. And He knew the motives of this big crowd following after Him. They followed Him. 
But Jesus was not impressed with their enthusiasm. He knew their hearts. They were seeking miracles, physical blessings. Some hoped that He would overthrow the government. And they were expecting wrong things and had a false understanding of what it truly means to follow Jesus. They were following Jesus so they might get something. And if I follow you, maybe you'll give me something. Maybe He'll turn around and He'll heal me. Maybe He'll throw me some stuff. Maybe I'll get, him, get to see him do a miracle. Maybe if he goes in and overthrows Rome, I can come with him and maybe I'll be like one of the main people in charge in Rome. That'd be great. Let me just hang around Jesus and we're hanging out with him so that we might get stuff. And the Lord knew their motives. And look what it says. And he turned and said to them, Jesus turned to the multitude and preached a sermon that deliberately would thin out the crowd. You know what? This is not part of the church growth movement right here. Jesus turns around and just preaches a message that is going to thin out the crowd. And the world would say, oh no, man, don't say anything that might offend anybody because you want to have as many folks coming as you can. Then they'll give more money. You can buy more stuff, right? It'd be great, right? And that's not, and the church growth movement says, dial it down. And he's, the Lord turned around. He saw the massive crowd and didn't say, hey, cool, wow. This is awesome. Look at all the people. Instead, he taught a deliberate message that would thin out the ranks of people. When it comes to personal discipleship, he was more interested in quality than quantity. He was more interested in having people following him who truly understood what it meant to follow him than just have a big throng walking around behind him. And so he's going to talk to them about discipleship. The discipleship comes with a price. And let's take a look in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What? Doesn't the Lord teach us that we're to lay down our lives for our family and our children's children, that we're to love them above all else, that we're to, to have a supernatural love for our homes and our family, and now the Lord's saying that we need to hate our family? This word here is talking about in comparison. Our love for God must be so supreme that our love for anything else is almost like hate. We love God so much that everything else pales in comparison. And he said, if that's not the case, then you cannot be my disciples. You cannot be a true follower of mine if, my, if your love for me is not supreme above everything else. It's radical from the world's perspective. You know, Jesus is one of the things in my life. Being a Christian is part of who I am. You know, I'm a, I'm a salesman, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm an American, and I'm a Christian. And that's how a lot of people view it. But you know what the reality is? We are Christians who happen to be salesmen and fathers and husbands and Americans. Amen? You know what, my allegiance, I love our country, I praise God that I live here, but I'm not of America, I'm of Jesus Christ. Amen? My passion above all else is to serve Him. And so often we get patriotic, but then that's fine, but our patriotism should not supersede our desire to serve God. The word disciple is used 264 times in the Gospels and the book of Acts. Jesus, again, makes it very clear that there's something beyond simply salvation. Salvation is open to all who come, but true discipleship are those who say, Lord, I want to be sold out for you. Lord, you're more important to me than anything else. Lord, I want to live a radical life for you. Lord, I'm willing to give it all away, sell it all, quit, whatever you want, Lord. You're the most important thing in the world to me. And you know what? There's not enough of that in the Christian world today. Can you imagine what would happen if everybody in this room were like that? What would happen to Santa Cruz if we were just all totally sold out for God? If we weren't worried about what the world thought anymore. If we weren't trying to achieve stuff that's all going to perish anyway. You know, fighting over deck chairs in the Titanic, right? You know, how big can my house be? It's all sink and ship anyway. But we're so focused on that that people walk by us all day long that need to hear about the love of God. And we have no time for them. Why? Because we're too busy chasing after stuff. The Lord is very clear. So that term in comparison, we must love God supremely above all else. Our love for Him, so strong that our love for everything else is hatred in comparison. To be His disciple, you cannot have any affection that supersedes your love for Christ. You know what? In all the years I was a youth pastor, one of the things I used to talk to kids about all the time is, I don't, first of all, dating's nowhere in the Bible, so I don't believe in it. Right? It's not there. Show it to me. It's 75 years old. It's courtship to marriage. And you're not, date, you're not getting married when you're 15, so you shouldn't be dating anybody. Right? Now, a lot of parents didn't like when I said that stuff, but that's okay. It's not about being popular. So here's the reality. I tell that to people, and they, oh, man, you've got to be kidding. And you know, all I'd say is, you know what would happen? Even if you had two really godly 15-year-olds, they're looking at each other every time they come to youth group where before they were worshiping. 
They stop seeking after God and they start thinking about youth group. I've got to look good for him. I've got to look good for her. And what happens is we get distracted. We start putting other things before God. And we can do that as adults too. We can be so distracted by the world that God is just falls down on the list. He's not the supreme thing. We don't pray about whether or not we should be taken off for a month and a half on vacation. You know, Lord, if that's what you want, great. But Lord, I want to make sure that above all else, I'm in your will. And I'm being used for your glory. Let me encourage you with this as your pastor. God wants to do more with you. He wants to do more with you. He wants to do more with me. And you know what? He's not holding back. I am. Amen? God wants to do more with me, but I hold back. God wants to do more with you, but you hold back. We're too busy chasing after stuff to be focused on Him and be used fully by Him. You know what? Look what it says here in verse 27. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The word bear his cross, now that doesn't mean, I hear people use this term all the time. Oh yeah, you know, i got these noisy neighbors. Just, I'm just bearing the cross for Christ. People making noise. It's my, it's my cross to bear. You ever heard people talk like that? Oh, I've got, a, you know, I've got this thing on my hand. It's my cross to bear. That's not a cross to bear. Noisy neighbors, would you stop it? That's not a cross to bear. A cross, the cross he's talking about here is dying to self, to our wills, to our ambitions, and having a willingness to serve Him as He directs. Dying to self to see that others might be ministered to. Laying aside your rights, your stuff, your dreams in order to minister to others. What, what did Jesus do when He came? He died that we might have life. Amen? He came and He died so that we might be ministered to. As Christians, to truly follow Him, to be true disciples of Him, we must die that others might be ministered to. Our will, our passions, our plans, our desires. Not my will, but your will be done. You know what? Before you make a big prayer, pray. Before you make a job change, pray. Pray about how, how God wants to use you more because I know that He does and I, and I know that's true for you. I'm not talking to, at you. I'm speaking with you because I know the Lord is the same way with me. He wants to do more with me, but I get, I get my eyes on the world way too much. Verse 28. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it. Lest after he has laid the foundation is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him. Saying this man began to build and was not able to finish. Count the cost before you get involved or in the end you'll be mocked. You know, yesterday my wife was mocked at the picnic. You did what? You're hu- Why are you married to that guy? You know? What? He did what? He took your house away from you? Oh, man, I can't believe he did that to you. You know what? Again, we know that we know that we know that we've heard from God. And all I did was say, you know what, let's pray for her. We just need to pray for her. A man is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. When you let go of this world, you will never regret it. You'll be blessed that you did. Amen? You think people are standing in heaven going, yeah, I wish I had more stuff on earth. You know, I really, man, if I just bought that bigger house, how much more happy would I be in heaven, right? I mean, you know what? The Bible says when we get to heaven, He's going to wipe away every tear. But He's not wiping our tears away because we're... We, we're in need of salvation. That's already done. He's going to be wiping away our tears because we will be grieving that we didn't do more for the kingdom of God. Amen? How many of you know that you need to do more for the kingdom of God? Raise your hand. And my hand's up. We need to do more. Amen? Not less. Oh man, you're doing way too much for God. It's impossible to do way too much for God. Count the cost and realize that what you're giving up is nothing in comparison to eternity. You need to also assess your enemy before you go into battle. You know what? The Bible says we battle not with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities and evil forces of darkness in high places. Satan's resources are limited, and guess where he's going to spend them? On those who are being used most mightily by God. You know, we've had people, pastors in this church right here, who've had, and I, you know, I don't get involved in all this. I'm not a hyper guy. Everything's demon of this, demon of chocolate and the demon of this and demon of that. I don't believe in that stuff. But I do know that Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom we may devour. And I know that about nine months ago, I had something in my house in the middle of the night that shook my house like it was a 10.0 earthquake and told me, stop teaching the Word and I'll leave your family alone. And I know who that was. And you know what? Assess your enemy. Understand that if you serve God full out, there's going to be somebody who doesn't like it. There's going to be an enemy who doesn't like it. There's going to be a world who doesn't like it. Count the cost and be ready. Amen? And know that it's okay. All that did was get me excited. 
make me say charge, amen? The enemy's coming, that means, oh, God must be using me. That's good, right? Amen? And so we need to have that heart and that passion to say, all right, Lord, I'm counting the cost. I'm willing to give up what I cannot keep to gain what I cannot lose. Lord, I don't care what the world says. I don't care that I might have some discomfort in the, from a physical perspective. Lord, I want to give my whole life to you. It's like the man who said when they passed the plate and the offering that he wanted to put himself in the plate. He said, Lord, I don't want to just give you my money. I don't want to just give you my stuff. I want to give you me. I want to give you me. Everything. My whole being. I want to give it all to you. Imagine what the Lord can do. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord search to and fro among the whole earth, seeking one who can show himself strong on account of. God's looking for someone in your workplace, someone in your neighborhood, someone in your school who he can... He can come alongside and use mightily for His glory. And He's not looking for ability, but availability. Just someone to say, Lord, I'm here. Use me. That's discipleship. And He says the true cost of discipleship. Look at the rest of it. Count the cost. Verse 31. Oh, what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes after him with 20,000. Or, or else, while the other is still coming, sends a, a delegation and asks conditions of peace. Verse 33, so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Man, this is radical from the world's perspective. Now, this doesn't mean, guys, that we're going to go sell all we have and go, you know, move up to, you know, Idaho and, and live on some land somewhere and wait for Jesus to come back. Go sell all you have. He wants us to be so sold out for him and our love for him and our relationship with him that nothing else is important. And Lord, if you want me to move to Russia, I'll go tomorrow. And Lord, if you want me to quit my job and go do something else because it's an opportunity for your kingdom, then Lord, I'll do it. Lord, if you want me to get rid of my stuff so I can honor you, Lord, I'll do it. It's that, that's discipleship. Taking up the cross. You dying to your will, your passions, your desires, so that others might be ministered to. Esteeming others greater than yourself. You must bear the cross. Die to self. Your rights, your will. Humble yourself. Esteem others. Last two verses. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its favor, flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out, and he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that you are the salt of the earth. Now what does salt do? We're the salt of the earth. What does that mean? What do we do as salt? You know, it's interesting that in Jesus' day and even later, that people were actually paid part of their salary with salt. Salt was considered very valuable. You've heard that term before, he's not worth his salt, right? Salary, he's not worth the money he's paid. That's where the term comes from. But what does salt do? Salt does several things. It, it preserves. People would use it and take it to preserve things. It would keep things from, from uh, deteriorating. And you know what? If the church were not here, the world would deteriorate overnight. Amen? In hours, it would be game over. The only thing keeping the world from just falling apart completely is God's people being here. Salt is a purifying agent. It's an antiseptic that cleanses. It stings when it touches the wound, but it helps kill the infection. You know what? That's what God's called us to be. We're called to be a cleansing agent, to reach out to others. And lastly, salt gives flavor and makes people thirsty. We should be so in love with God that people are thirsty to know the God that we know. Amen? People should just be, whoa. And it's radical how you live your life. I don't get it, but you've got joy and I don't. You know, the story of Daniel. Daniel's in the lion's den and King Darius is up in the palace. King Darius is the most wealthy man on the planet. He's got everything that anybody could want and he can't sleep. He's tormented all night long and he has no peace. Daniel's in the lion's den with a bunch of angry animals that could kill him at any moment and he's sleeping. Why? Because Darius is out of God's will and Daniel's in the center of it. The only place that we're going to have peace is walking with the Prince of Peace. Amen? And walking in the center of His will. The world will not bring you joy. Stuff cannot bring you joy. Stuff cannot bring you happiness. And I know this again, it's a heavy duty and a pretty straightforward message, but you know what? These are Jesus' words to the people that were sitting there. He told them very clearly. You know what? Flavorless salt, like lukewarm Christians, is of no value. Discipleship, following Christ, requires this. And this is in closing. One, we must be humble. It must not be for our will. It must not be to puff ourselves up. It must not be our ambition. Second of all, those who truly want to follow Christ give with no motive to receive in return. Give selflessly. 
humility and giving selflessly. The third thing is, those who trust in Christ don't, work, don't trust in the religious background. They don't make excuses for why they're not coming to the feast, but they respond to God's calling. You know, you may be sitting at it right now and say, you know, I know that the Lord wants to use me more, and I want to respond to Him, but... And then you give whatever you put after that, weak, right? But, got a new job. But, I've got my children to take up. But, what, does God know the stuff that's going on in your life? What, God fell asleep or what? Does God know? Does God know that you're married? Does God know that you have kids? Does God know that you have a job? But did God put you there and still desire to use you? The answer is yes. And so we can sit and we make excuses. But those who truly want to be His disciples, no excuses. Aren't you glad that the Lord didn't make any excuses on the way to the cross? Amen? Aren't you glad He didn't say, you know, I'm thinking another day might be good for this. I'm just, yeah, you know, I would, ah, it's going to be pretty painful. I'm thinking maybe later. Aren't you glad that He just went to the cross? And why did He go? Because He loves you. And why is it that we will not make excuses in our walk? Because we love Him. Amen? Supremely above everything else. God, it's you first. I'm serving you. I'm doing whatever you want. And then lastly, again, love Christ above all. So may we be salty for Christ. If the worship team will come back up, I'm going to close the song. And you know what? I want to say this. I find it interesting that this is at a supper. And do you know that there is a supper coming? The marriage supper of the Lamb. Amen? When we will sit and we will dine with Jesus. And when I sit with Him, my desire would be that I have lived a life sold out for Him. That I don't want to get to heaven and be filled with regrets. I want to hear, enter in my good and faithful servant. Amen? And to do that, I'm going to have to get my eyes off of stuff and keep my eyes on Him. And you know what? When we take communion, I think it's a clear picture just of that supper. Because when we take communion, I find it in my own heart. Maybe it's true with you too. When I'm sitting and taking communion, I'm not thinking about what people think about me. I'm only thinking about what God did for me. I come to Him in humility. I'm blown away that He would die for me. And my focus is on Him. That's what happens when we take communion. And that's what will be happening at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will be blown away at what He's done for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We praise You, Lord. And Lord, I know this is an exhortive word this morning. And I pray, Lord, that, the, that every man and woman here would receive it, knowing that it's delivered with love. But Father God, if we truly love You, we will never water down Your truth. We'll never tell people what, what they want to hear. We're not going to be ear ticklers, Father. Father. We just want to know Your perfect will. And Father, we want to be supernaturally empowered by Your Holy Spirit to have an impact on Santa Cruz County. Lord, this county needs You so desperately. Father, may we not be ashamed of You. May we live lives of reckless abandon for You. Lord, we love You, we praise You, we worship You, Lord. We ask, Father God, just that You would fill us with Your Spirit. Lord, use us and help us to be the mighty men and women of God You've called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand and close a worship song.